Hi, everyone. My name's Dan Pontefract. I'm trying to be the opposite of my last name. I'm not breaking bridges, I'm building bridges. And today I'm with the master of productivity, Mike Vardy. Welcome to A Productive Conversation with Mike Vardy. I am Mike Vardy, and I am joined by Dan Pontefract today. What an interesting opening. You're going to hear me talk about that right off the top, Dan kind of marches to the beat of his own drum, but we have a lot in common. We talk about that today, some of our commonalities during our conversation. Dan is a renowned leadership strategist, like I'm a productivity strategist, and he's an award-winning author with over two decades of experience. He's helping organizations and leaders improve overall performance. He served as chief learning officer at TELUS and SAP, and is an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria. Again, not too far from where I am, the Gustafson School of Business, which is there. Dan's written five best-selling books, including the latest book, which we are talking about during our conversation today, Work Life Bloom, and he also writes for Forbes and HBR, Harvard Business Review. We get into a lot during this conversation today. The idea of work-life balance, the idea of work-life bloom, does balance need an adjective? Where life fits in? what we both think about time management and productivity. This is a conversation that could have gone on for much longer, and I have no doubt that when we finally get together in person, we will have deep, meaningful, productive conversations like this one, which I will let you listen to right now. Here is my productive conversation, a productive conversation with Dan Pontefract. That is the most interesting introduction that we've had on the show in the over 500 episodes we produced. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. It's my pleasure, my friend. Go YYJ. Let's yeah. get into this. So this, it, I think that you are the first, one of the first, it, the first published author for sure that I've had on the show from Victoria. I'm almost positive, other than me, um, <laughs> because I'm the constant. But... Uh, it's great. We're not, we would normally do this live in like our my studio here, but you've got as we're recording this a book launch that's happening, and I know what that's like. The book that we're uh, talking about today: Work Life Bloom: How to Nurture a Team That Flourishes. So, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. And uh, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is recite your poem from the very beginning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I wonder. You know, there is a poem that that pretty much opens the book. I would like to know when that poem kind of came to you. Was it something that just kind of was a stream of consciousness thing or was it something that kind of was assembled during the process of, of the building of the book? Hmm. No one's asked me about the poem. So here's the first of all, the reason for a poem and then the poem itself. I made a conscious choice in 2012 when I was writing my first book to start the book, and if I ever wrote a subsequent book, uh, start that book with a poem. And I thought that would set the tone. And I was paying homage to perhaps uh, a friend of mine who's both and was, uh, you know, rock singer slash poet. And I thought this will pay homage to him and also a good way to set up the particular book. So the tradition continued four books in. And then I'm about to start writing Work Life Bloom. And I thought, well, you know, as usual, I'll wait for the moment to hit me and I'll find the right poem to insert for Work Life Bloom. But I got about two thirds in and I thought, I'm an idiot uh, for many reasons, Mike. But uh, <laughs> one of those is that uh, this is actually my book. Why, why don't I start 
writing poems about the book. Also, I could then call myself a published poet because I'm cheating, but it's <laughs> technically true. And so I then started noodling the idea of, well, what could I call this thing? And I was a big uh, Nirvana fan as well. And so mm -hmm. I sort of stole In Bloom and that was the title. And by the time the book finished, then I wrote the final version of the poem. I would think it's almost like you have to work backwards for something like that because of the contents of the book itself. I am not a fan of the term work-life balance, to be clear, okay? Now, the reason you. The, you. the reason I'm not is because I don't believe it needs the adjective. I think that when we put the adjective in front of it, it creates an accidental focus on one or the other as opposed to the balance between them, right? Mm -hmm. I think in moments it makes sense to focus more on one than the other, but with balance, and I know you illustrate this, this like it's never static. There's always dynamic elements to this. So why, why the term bloom then? Because I mean, the idea of work-life balance for a lot of people makes sense, but right on the inner sleeve of the book. And I mean, again, as we go through this conversation today, we're going to tease elements of the book, but you need to go pick up the book, but work-life balance isn't making anybody happy. And that was the, 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 I'm like, all right, I'm diving in because Dan and I are speaking the same language. So the bloom versus balance, I want to hear some thoughts around that, especially, you know, cause you, you look at the title of this book and I was bringing it to my community, the cover itself, it created uh, intrigue. So I'd love to hear more about that. Well, where do we start, Mike? Uh, Bloom, of course, for those that are linguistics and of the ilk where vernacular is something that takes them to another place, you could have negative bloom. Bloom could be the algae type where there's scores of scum that collect in a tidal pool and you're like, oh, that's gross. So it could be that, uh, which is a play on words, uh, of course. But then the more positive and you know optimistic side of bloom is, of course, the gardening metaphor and not those found in uh, tidal pools. And you're right. I mean, we've been so succumbed to the gravitational pull of the nonsense that is a balance between work and life when it's particularly in this, if we call it post-pandemic lifetime, uh, Mike, it's just, it, it, we can't reconcile what that means. And so I did like, however, the hard B sound. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there was a time in which when I was... Um, riding my bike around uh, our pastures of Vancouver Island. And it was in a February of uh, 2020 before we went locking down on things. And I'd already written my fourth book and I was coming out in the fall. And I saw, um, I saw a big hillside of daffodils. And daffodils, for most parts of Canada, um, do not bloom in February. I was going to get to that. We're, we're, we're in a very unique ecosystem here where you could be mowing your lawn in December. If the weather does, if the weather mm. acts the way that it does. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, that's the daffodils come out in February here for sure. So they, it struck me. It was like, Oh, wait a second. They're blooming here, but not where I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. They don't come out until you know, mid to late May. If they haven't been paved over already. If but they yes. haven't been paved over or <laughs> stolen by Hamiltonians. Shout out to Tiger Cat fans. 
Um, but then it, that was where it hit me. I was like, wait a second, they're not blooming here, or they're not blooming in Hamilton, but they're blooming here. Also, they seem to bloom in different parts of the world at different times. I was like, good God. There's, there can't, like, so then I start wrestling with the word bloom, right? I'm in a tizzy. I'm like fighting my, with myself on the, the verb and the gardening metaphor. And then the two things that came to me basically throughout 2020 was then the pandemic and I saw everyone go home and most leaders were quite empathic and they were taking care of their people. And now we're talking about working from home forever. And then by the end of the year, it started being ripped out. And then you saw what's happening current day. It's just kind of nonsense. And I'm like, okay, you're right. There is no such thing as balance. And then the further point to that is, well, this whole notion of employee engagement, that's ridiculously obtuse as well. So the two being an HR people and culture guy my whole life, I thought to myself, Mike, I'm like, oh my God, I'm part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I've been espousing employee engagement and work-life balance and all the things that I've been doing. And in fact, how ridiculously counterintuitive and nonsensical is it? So that's where it came from. One of those bike rides to begin with. Well, and I think it's interesting when you're in a space for long enough, you you go deep and you think it, it's it's omnipresent. Like uh, and I mentioned this before, but when I did comedy, like, you know, you're always looking, you're always observing You're you know, the, the, the roots of comedy are the ordinary, you, you, you make the ordinary, extraordinary, the extraordinary, ordinary. That's generally the construction of a basic comedy premise. When you spend a lot of time in any area, you set, you seem to find what you're spending a lot of time in everything that you, you come across. So it's not surprising to me at all that you're on this bike ride and that hits you because you're so immersed in it. It's this, and I'm noticing for myself with the relationship to time. And I mean, I'm not a fan of the term time management anymore because time, oh, time will you're not be my new best one. <laughs> time management is a waste of time. Time will not be managed. You cannot manage something that moves on whether you are there or not. Right. It's the same thing with productivity. Not a fan of that term either because it tends to lead towards quantity more than quality typically. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole history behind that. And and so the idea of balance, I don't even like it when people go work-life harmony or work-life integration or whatever. It's like <laughs> drop the adjective because at the end of the day, it's already, it's, it's innate. It's already happening. Like you were literally riding your bike and the work and it's all, it's all kind of put together. You wouldn't have been able to have that kind of revelation if you hadn't spent enough time, depth, things like that in this, in this arena. And so, it, you know, when I think about the idea of bloom, plus, I mean, let's face it, the other thing that, that can happen with bloom is weeds. Weeds bloom. I mean, we live in a part of the, I mean, that's the other thing here. Gardening happens almost year round here in a, in a, in a manner of speaking, because, you know, you have to tend it. Otherwise things get choked out. Things get, you know, the weeds take care of it. Same thing with, um, that grass that grows that the wheat, the, you know, the one that gets stuck in the dog's uh, dog's paws and stuff that you see notices on. I'm sure you've seen them where it's like, please oh, yeah. cultivate this. But um, what I want to get into is this idea of, you know, you've got work factors and life factors. So you are inside of the book kind of showing, Hey, you need to at least know what these things are so that you can actually kind of, mesh them or meld them to a degree. So you've broken things down to like work factors and life factors. And I'm wondering if we could go over, let's start with the life factors first, because we tend to focus on the work stuff. You know, it, it, we spend a lot of time at work, so it makes sense. But let's let's jump into the, the life factor stuff, because you've got six, and I love the number six, 
Uh, it's just a, a nice handy number. Um, uh, I'm a fan of hexagons. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what are some of those life factors? And when you were thinking about when you're putting the book together, this is in chapter four, um, which one was the one that you kind of had that same revel, you know, revelation about like you did when you were seeing mm-hmm. those daffodils, which was the one you're like, Oh, so I do love six as well. Uh, the, the factors actually both the work and the life, but the life factors came through me, uh, doing some global research. Mm-hmm. And so I went to, uh, just under 10,000 people, 5,000 leaders, 5,000 non-leaders. And I asked questions about, so, um, you know, if there's no such thing as work-life balance, tell me what factors you need in order to feel that you're at your best. And in what combination and sort of how does this all, you know, anyway, long story short, I got to six. And so uh, the six are uh, meaning, so sense of meaning, self-meaning, right? Uh, Your relationships, like your network, like who you're connected with or not, your sense of well-being, are you well financially, socially, physically, and so on, uh, your skills to feel you have aptitude effectively, um, agency and respect. And so to your question, like which one sort of surprised me. And I think now it seems to be the one that's, um, taking root in this era of whatever post pandemic means. And, and what do I need to bring ultimately to both my life, you know, as a self-character and then into work. The one that keeps popping up for me is relationships. Right. And what I'm seeing, and this is kind of like across a span of four generations, although I haven't interviewed anyone who's alpha, which is those basically in the 11, 12 year bracket, right? And younger. But What I'm saying is that relationships and your ability to have connections, not superficial Instagram people liking your cat videos, playing piano connections. That's not a relationship. That's that's a, a facsimile of a relationship. But we're talking about nurtured, meaningful, um, people who care, who can look out for you, but also can call you out on things. And you, it's not just about family, although that's important. But what I've discovered is that people whom have that deep uh, level of relationship, it's not about a number either. It's just about, do you have people that are caring and nurturing for you, with you, where there's reciprocity and it's not one way? When we, when we know how to build those skills, we know how to use those skills and can bring those into the organization. That's the sim- simpatico that we kind of need between these factors, by the way. Mm-hmm. Then, you, um, then you feel, uh, again, you're, you're further on the path towards blooming than, than not. And so between my research and a couple pieces of great research from Harvard, incidentally, uh, it just seems to me that if we're going to live in a bubble if we're going to live in a place where we don't think we need anyone else or that we don't have the skills in which to craft those relationships, we're in trouble. So I want to talk about the idea. You, you mentioned this right off the, the jump when we were talking about the factors is this idea of bringing your best self, being your best self, getting yourself as opposed to controlling 
you know, what's going on or take like there's a distinction there that I think is really important. I think a lot of people when they're trying to get a handle on work and life stuff, what happens is, is that they try to take control. They try to control what won't be. And it's, which is a form of, of chaos within order, right? Like they just, and they end up getting upset. They don't get what they're looking for, et cetera. So I'd love to hear the, the, the distinction. And I know you allude to this to a degree in this idea of work-life balance and best, best self balderdash, like right out of the gate, this idea of bringing your best self. I think it's, it's an important piece of language for people to get. So can we kind of dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So whether it's public sector, whether it's not-for-profit or for-profit, it doesn't really matter when the leaders are, are espousing a culture in which, huh, Mike, we allow you to bring your best self to work. <laughs> we want you to show up with your most authentic self. And then we, with vigor and the sharpest knife in the drawer, slice it away by not caring, by being uh, completely devoid of empathy and not creating those conditions that actually allow an individual to feel that that individual leader or organization cares about some of those life factors like relationships, like people's well-being and so forth. Uh, it can feel quite lonely. It can feel quite... Um, Quite like you have been duped. Right. And so if you feel duped <laughs> and you're, quote, going to work, is it not then, which is kind of the third point I want to make, uh, which I love how you bring this up, this whole notion, we want you to bring your most authentic self. Well, if if you've got um, tattoos right. on your arms, and all of a sudden now uh, you're coming to work and, and you're wearing long sleeve shirts because your boss has said, anyone who wears tattoos here will be fired or I can't stand tattoos. What type of nonsense is that? Just like I'm being hypothetical, but we know it's happening. And so that sense of or lack of belonging, that lack of being feeling value, that lack of trust for me being just a human being with some tattoos can eviscerate the whole adage of bringing your best self to work. Now, that's just example one. Right. The flip side, of course, right, is we we say you're going to bring your best self to work, okay? Uh, but when you start looking at Gallup and Aon and all the different groups, great place to work, who measure, quote, employee engagement, tell me why all those numbers and the stats have remained the same decrepitly low levels for years like to me what we're saying doesn't equate to what the result is and so even coming to sort of the language of being the world's greatest productivityist that you are the mm -hmm. master of productivity um i too agree that there's no such thing as time management it is akin to saying bring your best self to work you don't manage best self, the most authentic self, you help create the behaviors and the conditions like you would to be a better, um, you know, uh, I don't like productivity either, but let's just use the vernacular, to, to better be, time manager, to be more productive. Yeah. Like to be productive instead of doing productive. Cause I, there's a distinction there. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, yeah. and, and I think a lot of people, 
they and we you know we could go into a rabbit hole, but they confuse you know you know activity with productivity, right? Like you know what I mean. And and I think that's where some of the some things get lost. So as we make our way through this, you know, not just the book, but like when people are trying to navigate, and there's stories in the book you talk about um, um, the. Uh, the, the 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 lady from Loblaws. What was uh the, the oh, right out of the game? Kim. Yeah, yeah. you know, Kim. like just killing it, killing it, and all of a sudden it's like I think just when I was reading that part, like just before burnout or the awareness of burnout on setting was kind of like I'm out, I'm piecing out, and I wonder if, and I've done this actually. We were talking about this before the recording, but this idea of time and how it, you know, we we are really terrible at understanding. The, the way time passes when we are engaged in activities that don't really allow us to understand it, to, to have that perspective. I've done this before. I know I've mentioned the story on the show before, but the idea of when I tell people, hey, we're going to do nothing for a minute. And then at the end of the experiment, people tell me, oh, I feel anxious. I feel nervous. I felt overwhelmed. The people who actually meditated, paused, slowed down, were like, oh, that didn't, you know, that felt great. That felt... I, I asked him, did that feel like a minute? No, no, it didn't. I'm like, well, it wasn't. It was 42 seconds. So and people are like, what? I'm like, yeah. So the people that are, you're so in it that you fail to take a beat to understand, you know, to, to take into account these factors that you're talking about, to understand that, you know, like if you're going to bring, quote, your best self to a moment, and I mean, I'm air quoting this right now, but this idea of that, if you're going to be able to be the best that you can be in a moment, you, you can't just keep going, 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 doing, doing, doing. That's not how that works. So I'd like to talk about if, if people are trying to adopt what you're putting in, in, in the pages of work-life bloom, you know, adopting the factors and, and again, how to nurture a team, you're talking to leaders here, right? How, how does, how do you convince someone that the importance of slowing down, taking a beat, doing this qualitative work where it may not necessarily show up on the bottom line right away, but it's integral because when it, when it does show up on the bottom line, you're going to be really impressed. So can we crack that nut a little bit? Oh, geez. I know it's a a big loaded question, but I think it's an important one. Well, as a quick sidebar, uh, my third book, Mike was titled open to think, and it was all about this, and it continues to be, uh, I hope use in a way, it's about how we, not you, but are so distracted and addicted to the dopamine of on and being on and being on and doing and executing. Uh, even to this day, when I'm doing keynotes and or workshops on Open to Think, I will um, start off in the middle of a room of a thousand or two thousand people uh, with some sort of piece of 45, 60 seconds of classical music. And I'll sit there and I'll stare at people. <laughs> and I'm looking at them, <laughs> wondering if they know what I'm doing and if they're agitated or if they're on their phones. And then I speak to that and say, you see, even those wellness moments you're agitated by in the middle of a keynote or the beginning or a workshop, what have you. And why is that? And so if I connect book three, open to think with this one, work like bloom to your question, I think what the results show from the catastrophic increase in 
uh, no bullet point or no um, uh, weighted bullet points here. So just bullet points in loneliness, in burnout, back to your Angie Kim reference, mm -hmm. uh, in stress, in anxiety, in obesity, uh, in anger, in sadness. These are all irrefutable points that have continued to increase since the year 2009 when two particular firms have been tracking these. So they started to look at um, basically because of the fiscal cliff era, let's, let's track world levels of, of these factors. And they're all up. And I'm talking, Mike, up by levels that are, as I say, like catastrophic, if not cataclysmic. So the data um, suggests and purports that bringing your best self, work-life balance, employee engagement, all the things we think we've been doing for the better part of a decade and a half are not working. And if they're not working based on data that suggests it's not working, then perhaps we need to be rethinking what the equation is. Right. And that's all I'm trying to do is to nails on a chalkboard, uh, make it hurt and say, what could we be thinking about this differently? Because it's clearly not working. Wellness week is hilarious when we think about it. Like the <laughs> wellness exercise, it just drives me nuts because you're exactly right. Like I've gone, I've, I don't know if you've had this happen to you before. And I mean, I don't mind saying this because if people, you know, if it, help, if it, if it, if it affects my ability to get some workshops and gigs during quote wellness days or wellness weeks, my point is, is that whenever I've done this with actual like employees that are like not at the higher level, but you know, they're brought in sometimes to use up the professional development budget, sometimes to, you know, or like honestly to, you know, kind of help people. I can't tell you how many times we get, I get from people like, I don't have time, like, I don't have time for this. They're literally in two places at once, maybe more. They're, they're sitting in the workshop, but they're thinking about the 43 things that they have to do, which is, which is omnipresent. And then really what's the point? And it, it just becomes like almost like a, a glad handing or this, they, see, we're doing it. We're doing this wellness thing, but not really. What, what do you say to people? And I mean, you don't have to say anything if you don't want, because it could very well do the same thing for you. But what do you say to those leaders who are doing things like, well, we do this kind of thing where we have, you know, like our, uh, you know, our wellness week, or we, you know, open vacation time and all that stuff. When at the end of the day, people are still going, well, yeah, but I've got, you know, my inbox is going to be full by the time I get back. Or, you know, I get text messages from, you know, I forget to turn off my notifications on Slack or whatever term you're using. And those things pop up or just the fact that's in the back of your head. I'd love to hear more about that because it does prevent some of what we're, you're talking about in this book. And yeah, the idea of what you've tied together with your previous book, it, that's problematic. There's a organization, a for-profit company in Canada for listeners outside of Canada that uh, is called Bell. And Bell in January every year has something called Let's Talk Week. Mm -hmm. Bell Let's Talk. And for every text and X slash tweet and whatever, the company donates five cents, 10 cents to um, their uh, mental wellness fund that then funds mental wellness uh, organizations. Now, in principle, you got to say kudos, Bell. Sure. 
you know, you are highlighting an issue about mental wellness and you are trying to get coverage on that for the week because it's called Bell Let's Talk Week. To your point about Wellness Week and Bell's Let's Talk Week, uh, that's actually the point. <laughs> it is, it's, it can't be, uh, it can't be something in which we think about once every 52 weeks. Right. And we have to inculcate these behaviors into the very fabric of how we are as human beings. It's not a once a year thing, nor is agency, nor is trust, nor is purpose, right? These are things we need in order to feel that we might be able to, quote, bloom in both our work and our lives. And I think there's a fiduciary responsibility of leaders to have the wherewithal in which to craft those conditions so that they stop doing what we're doing to human beings in both work and life. So I guess half kudos to Bell and others that have, quote, wellness day or wellness week, but that's not actually what I'm I'm suggesting. I think that we need a systemic, um, yeah, re-engineering of what it means to be a human being in both work and life. And the organization has been culpable of creating these societal after effect conditions that is clogging up humanity. How's that? That's, I hope people are listening to that, that have the ability to make change in that area, because you're right. Like it, it, and I don't think it just has to happen inside. This is the life factor too, which, you know, you talk about the, the idea of life stuff is that as a person, like I remember, and I know we're, we're coming up to the end, uh, but I want to share this really quickly. I remember when I talked about having my monthly theme in December being relationships. So what our monthly theme is, for those that don't know, is it's basically an overarching focus for an entire month. It doesn't mean that I only focus on relationships. It just yeah. means that, you know, it's, it gives me a, a waypoint. I remember someone said to me, so you don't focus on relationships outside of December? Like you just kind of, I'm like, no. I illuminate it in December and it makes the most sense to do it in December because of the holiday season. Uh, especially, you know, if you're in the States, you're, you're kind of going from, you know, that six week period from Thanksgiving all the way to the end of the year. So it makes sense. But what it does is it highlights it. And that means that I'm going to give more attention to it. And that's really all it is. But if you, so I have things on my to-do list, like, um, you know, play with my, play GI Joe with my son or play something with my son. People are like, well, why would you have to put that? You should just know to do that. I'm like, I know to do it. I know that it's something, but it's nice to have that reminder either in my paper planner or a ping or something like that, because I can't just do it, you know, once every, I want to do it more consistently and in a sustainable way. And that's where I want to kind of get close to wrapping up is when it comes to the practices that you share inside of this book, as well as your body of work in general, consistency is one thing but sustainable, sustainable consistency. Cause we hear about consistency all the time. That's another famous buzz. We've got to be consistent. Yeah. But if you can't sustain it, like you've got to put some front end work in front of it to make sure you can sustain that consistency. So you can't just say, we're going to do this all the time without having the wherewithal to know, can we even do that? So when it comes to the practices inside of this book, cause you've got the framework and, and the idea of work like bloom, how does someone not only do it consistently, but sustainably? Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, uh, I too, as I mentioned, agree violently, incidentally, that there's no such thing as time management, but there is a thing called self-management. Right. 
And although I, again, agree that time management's not a thing, but self-management requires calendar management. Mm -hmm. And if we aren't using our calendars as leaders of work and life, that that then therein lies the, the point about us as human beings. We will forget. We need to institutionalize our behaviors. We need to be, make them systemic. And if we're not using prompts and prods like Moleskins, like uh, Evernote, like other notepads and a calendar that actually gets you crafting the behavior into something that you can actualize, that you can action, that you can execute on, you'll forget or more often you'll forget or you won't habitualize that, that habit or that new muscle that you need to develop. So to your point about G.I. Joe with your son, and friggin' tastic. That's great. You have grown up to be a leader in which you know that in order to not lose sight of what you want to actualize from that muscle development, you've plotted that thing into a calendar because you know it's important and you're forcing yourself to manage yourself by calendarizing it. And so, where can we go with this, Mike? When, <laughs> well, when leaders aren't teaching self-management or adopting it for themselves and we're uh, having... Um, you know, just like troops of of up and coming leaders not using that type of behavioral management to institutionalize those systemic behaviors that we're looking for. Like, it's not going to work. So, which is why I think you're right. Thank you, by the way, with the word body of work or the phrase like that's connecting open to think with work life bloom. And perhaps that's why the two are um, you know, close in proximity to one another, you need both. Mm -hmm. You've got to be open to think and institutionalize these behaviors, but we need a new way in which to think about work-life balance and employee engagement and best self stuff. So there you go. Dan, the, thanks for taking the time to join me today. We could talk for hours and because we live so close to each other, we, we may be able to actually do this again in the future. Um, the book is as of the release of this podcast is now out. It's called work life bloom, how to nurture a team that flourishes. Where can people pick up the book and where can people keep up with the work that you're doing and the uh -huh. life that you're doing though? Actually, let me rephrase that the work <laughs> and life that you're blooming. <laughs> you already, you already developed the muscle like Mike, Mike V you're good. Uh, Pretty easy. Just go to worklifebloom.com. That gets you to all the things you need to to see. You'll find out more about me. And um, yeah, I just appreciate the the chat, Mike. You're the real deal, and you're a real human being. It's nice to know that uh, there are others out there that that care deeply about humanity. Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate that, and thanks for having a productive conversation with me today. Right back at you. Big thanks to Dan for joining me on the program today. I can't wait to actually get to hang out with him in person. This should not be a problem for us because as I mentioned off the top of the program, we are literally around the corner from one another. Uh, not literally, but figuratively. <laughs> uh, figuratively speaking, you can check out all of the show notes that we discussed today at productivities.com slash podcast 502. Literally, you can also do it on the device that you are using to get your podcast. If you're listening to this or taking this in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you can check out the show notes there. You can also subscribe to the show. That's one way to support the program. That way you won't miss an episode of what's to come. And you can easily search the archives of 500 plus episodes that we've done to date, including conversations with Gretchen Rubin, Annie Duke, Seth Godin, David Allen, Chris Bailey, uh, Ryder Carroll, Cal Newport, the list goes on and on. So 
subscribe to the show. That's one way to support it. Another way is to check out the sponsors that you heard during my conversation with Dan today. Just go to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors. Check those sponsors out. And that way, when you sample what they have to offer, they know that we sent you there. That's it for this episode of A Productive Conversation. Until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.